to be here. Um, thank you so much, uh, you guys, as well, for your sharing your, your heart for the Inuit people. Um, I've been able to spend just a short time uh, up north in Kugaluktuk and uh, spent a week there with uh, SBC through our Mission X program, and, and we did uh, about seven days' worth of, uh, of ministry there. And, uh, yeah, the things you were saying about the, the need for, for, for ministry for the gospel there is, uh, is quite true. So, uh, yeah, God bless you as you, uh, as you continue your preparations for uh, that um, exciting but also challenging ministry. As some of you may have known, uh, my name is Terry Hebert, and I'm the uh, acting, I like to call it acting president of Simac Bible College. Uh, acting is like you pretend that you're a president, and people sometimes believe you. Um, it was announced this week, of course, that uh, Dave Reimer is our new president, and uh, that will be taking place on June the 1st. So um, it was interesting. I was at Mission Fest yesterday, and uh, an older gentleman that I've known for many years said, uh, it, I'm so glad that you've got such a good president now. And I went, what does that make me? Um, I'm not sure. Uh, my assistant actually was talking to a former, uh, a former assistant uh, for SBC, and she says, you'll be so happy to, to, um, to be working for such a godly president. And she went, well, what about Rob and Terry? Um, and so there, there's been, obviously there, there's some good, um, good vibes coming from uh, the people who, uh, who, know that, who know Dave, and I'm looking forward to, to, ministering, to him, uh, ministering with him as well in a, in a different role. Uh, but yes, he'll be a good and godly president, and we're looking forward to that. For the next couple of months, it'll be he must increase, but I must decrease. This week is, uh, or this couple of weeks, and we, I was at Mission Fest yesterday, and uh, inspired by, by some of the speakers and uh, and. Times connecting with uh, alumni and others, um, and we also had our mission day this, this last Friday uh, with mission groups coming and, and challenging our students um, and staff as well to get involved in missions. Our mission trips are coming in the next uh, two weeks. Uh, we've got uh, students going to Turkey, uh, to the to uh, northern Manitoba, uh, Thompson, and and the communities there, as well as to inner city Min- uh, Winnipeg. And so we're looking forward to to having them get uh, exposed to, to mission as well, and perhaps God will continue to transform their hearts and their minds to, uh, to gain the heart of God for, for people and for, for bringing people to, to faith in Jesus Christ. I want to thank you for the opportunity to be here this morning. Uh, I don't take this for granted. Um, I want to thank you for your partnership. Um, we, sh- we share the same building. I'm here uh, in chapels uh, regularly during the week, and you come here on Sundays. Uh, we share the same building, but sometimes we don't know what else, you know, what things are happening within the building on the other days when, when we're not around. And so uh, I encourage you to, to, uh, to find out about, about SBC. Perhaps there's a course that you, uh, you would like to take. We have evening courses, um, online courses, that kind of thing. And uh, perhaps you'd uh, like to get involved in some way to expand your understanding of who God is and what his desire is for you in this time of your life. There. February. February. That's a hard word to say. February. February. Uh, Focus is on love. And uh, 
my focus is on, on loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. Uh, that's kind of my, my sub-theme for, for this month for myself. Um, as a prof at Steinbeck Bible College, I have attended my share of weddings. I don't know, well over 100, I'm sure. Uh, in the early days, uh, my wife Luann and I, we uh, attended probably four to seven weddings every summer. And when a new wedding invitation came in the mail, yes, uh, in the mail, um, we announced that we had received another tax bill. Uh, it, it's a relational tax that we're joyful, uh, we're joyful in, in, um, in investing in. And it, it's a way of investing in our students. And when they invite you to their wedding, it, it shows that you have obviously made some kind of an impact on their life and they want more gifts. Um, there, are, um, there are fewer student weddings, I would say, now than there used to be, with less guests and more expensive and long waits for wedding venues and those kinds of things. Unlike our wedding four decades ago, in a church where we invited family, friends, our whole church and our whole neighborhood, about 450 were invited to the wedding, uh, with church ladies serving potato salad, cold meats, cheese, buns, and squares, and of course church coffee, um, this is the way that we did weddings. Something has changed, obviously, in weddings. They don't look quite the same now as they used to. Uh, but something hasn't really changed that much, and that is the microscopic wedding ceremonies that we have. Uh, you know, the 20-minute, 30-minute ceremonies uh, that say almost nothing, um, but just you get in, you say your vows, and, and get out. Um, but what does this say about how we invite God into our lives and how we, how we launch our, our relationships with God at the center? Okay, you can, t- yeah, turn that thing off because I don't want to scar you guys for too long. Uh, as weddings go, our celebrations really pale in comparison to the extravagance of wedding celebrations described in the Bible. The closest I came to maybe an extravagant wedding was attending William and Kate's royal wedding in April 29th of 2011, and I have a certificate to prove it, um, although I was in a park, uh, you know, about a kilometer away watching it on TV screens. Um, that's the closest I got. Biblical weddings, though, uh, by comparison to many of our weddings today, were quite extravagant. There were joyful celebrations. Marriages were, were based on, on their understanding of, of the great celebration of God with his people. And yes, it also starts in Genesis chapter 2, really, with, uh, with Adam and Eve, where God unites them in marriage in Genesis 2, 22 to 24. And it, it reminds us of the, the marriage ceremonies as well of Isaac and Jacob, Reflecting this covenant relationship that God had with his people. That covenant that he had with Adam and Eve, yes, but also with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And then them and their families and their families and their families. It reminds me of the covenant relationship that God established with Moses and the 70 elders on Mount Sinai with the coming of the law. God was the husband. And the people of Israel were his bride. This will be important later as we talk about... um, the passage that I'm going to refer to. There were some wedding texts in the Old Testament where it reflected on the wedding of stately weddings of kings and their brides in Psalm 45 and Song of Psalms, uh, chapter 3. Again, it was an image of this royal wedding of God with his people. Isaiah 61, verse 10, pictures that wedding of God with his people, where it pictures God's garment of salvation and the robes of righteousness 
the wedding clothes of his people, where there's gladness, rejoicing, anticipation over the other. Again, this will come in handy later. Keep it in mind. Jesus is called the bridegroom in John chapter 3, verses 22 to 30. And John the Baptist is his best friend who is announcing the coming of the bridegroom. The church, of course, in Ephesians 5, is the bride of Christ. And he gave himself up to make her holy, set apart. And in the future, uh, Jesus comes to the celebrating, celebrated wedding feast with his people. And in Revelation 19, 19 verse 9, it says, Blessed are those who are invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. Now, let's remember this Genesis to Revelation background. I like ethnos uh, and, and their Genesis to Revelation approach. I do that in my theology as well. I just did that. Um, and let's just remember this background as we prepare for the story of the wedding banquet in Matthew chapter 22. In Matthew's gospel, this parable of the wedding banquet, which is one that we've heard so many times, and we go like, is there anything new here? Or is there anything old that we need to remember um, this gospel of Matthew sets this parable of the wedding banquet in context. And I, I think we need to understand the context better so that we can understand the meaning. So it, it kind of brings to light the meaning of this parable as well. I'm going to start in Matthew 21, and I'll go through this relatively quickly. Matthew 21, verses 1 to 11, it starts with Jesus, and, and thank you for the singing, uh, all hail King Jesus, all hail Emmanuel. That's actually the beginning of Matthew 21, and... Jesus comes to Jerusalem announcing his kingship. It's really the bridegroom coming to his bride and inviting his bride to be his people. Comes into Jerusalem as the king in his triumphal entry. The crowds claiming Jesus is their prophet, their Messiah. Then in chapter, 12, uh, chapter 21, verses 12 to 22, Jesus enters into Jerusalem as the king of his triumphal entry, and then he goes immediately to cleanse the temple courts. Again, making his house a house of prayer, a sacred place for his people. It's the place where his people meet with God and, and spend time in that, in that relationship with God between the bridegroom and, and his people. After he cleanses the temple, he makes it a house of prayer and he heals the blind and the lame. And then he teaches in that same temple courts in verses 23 to 27. And here the chief priests and the elders ask, who gave you this authority by which to cleanse the temple and to, to proclaim this, this message? And so in typical rabbinic fashion, uh, Jesus is a, is a Jewish rabbi. He responds with a question, not about the law or politics, which is something that they would be concerned about, which is their expertise, but he goes back to a question about John the Baptist. Remember, his bridegroom. Who was this John the Baptist, and by what authority did he speak? Well, they can't answer that authority question, and so Jesus decides to uh, continue on with his teaching, and he gives them three parables, and all three of these parables connect together. Verses 28 to 32 is the parable of the two sons. What do you think? Uh, this is chapter 21. I'll just quickly get, get us up to speed, and then we'll go to to the parable of the wedding banquet. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and said, Son, go and work today in the vineyard. I will not, he answered. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the father went to the other son and said the same thing. He answered, 
I will, sir, but he did not go. Which of the two did what his father wanted? The first, they answered. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. Not exactly the message they were expecting to hear. There's this contrast between the true Israel and the false Israel, the true people of God and the false people of God. The first one says, no, I, I, I don't have time to work right now, I'm, maybe later. And then they eventually do go. And then the second one says, yeah, I'll, I'll go and work. And then they don't. Um, the difference between the true people of God and the false people of God is, and, and in fact, think, think of it, the religious leaders thought that they were the true people of God when Jesus flips it around and he says, actually, the true people of God are the ones that follow me and the ones that do something that these false people don't do. There's one key feature that may, that's the difference between the true people of God and the false people of God. I'll leave it at that. I'll just wait for that that to sink in for a moment. Second parable. Listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. This is verse 33 of that chapter. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and moved to another place. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed the other, stoned a third. Then he sent uh, other servants did the same thing. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill and take this as his inherit, uh, take his inheritance. So they took him, threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do with these tenants? And, and so then they said, well, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end, they replied, and he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give them his share of the crop at harvest time. He said that, and, and then he goes on. So they get the answer um, correct. They know which, which tenants are, are the true tenants and which are the false tenants. But here, in this parable, he's, he's talking about uh, the parable of the vineyard with the tenants, and the tenants aren't doing their job. He's actually going back to Isaiah chapter 5, verses 1 to 7, where it talks about the prophets being the ones who are the ones who are calling people to, to faith and to repentance. And, and the people in the vineyard, that is, the people who thought they were the true Israelites, are not bearing fruit. He sends the servants, and eventually he sends his son, whom they kill outside the vineyard. The irony is that the religious leaders are answering Jesus' question correctly this time, agreeing what the landowner should do, cast them out. And they realize that the, that the landowner should judge them. Remember, it's them. I was talking to a colleague once who remarked that the parables are, are really great because they always talk about other people. But what, what kind of tenants in these parables produce good fruit? What kind of tenants produce a crop that's worthy of the landowner? The first son and the tenants that he's looking for to produce the good crop, all of that comes together now in the parable of the wedding banquet. These themes converge into the third parable. Here is the focal point of Jesus' teaching using a drama in three acts. And let's watch how these themes come together. Act one, the king calls his chosen guests. 
verses 1 to 7 of 22. Jesus spoke to them again in parables, saying, The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, Tell those who have been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fatted cattle have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, mistreating them and killed them. The king was enraged and sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. Wow. Um, I didn't do that to those that weren't, didn't come to my wedding, thankfully. Um, I would have had some very unhappy neighbors. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. This is the son who was obedient, like the first son in that first parable. This is what the king was looking for in his tenants in the second parable, what they weren't doing, that is producing fruit. The king graciously invites many to an extravagant celebration. In, in, in Israel, these celebrations lasted about seven days. In the ancient Near East, the king would send the first invitation well in advance to give people notice that the wedding was coming. Um, I was in Israel a couple of, number of years back, and um, the, uh, the guide was talking about, uh, Jesus said, in my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And, and he was talking about when a bridegroom prepared a place, you didn't, uh, and people would ask, so when is the wedding? And the bridegroom would say, I don't know. Because the place isn't prepared yet. It was only once they had prepared the place, kind of built the, the addition to the, the family home, once that thing was finished, then the wedding would happen. But there would be an initial kind of an engagement, kind of an early wedding invitation. That's what this king is doing. Okay, giving an early wedding invitation. And as a sign of respect, the guests would, of course, agree to come to the banquet because they knew it was a long ways off and, and you know, it's, uh, there's still some time to come. Now, this had already happened when this parable begins. Think of the Old Testament covenant as God's invitation to the wedding. That's what's happening with Moses, the Ten Commandments, and the covenant with Israel. The king has invited his people to the wedding banquet. Now, the wedding is getting closer. And without refrigeration, of course, the king prepares a meal and knows the wedding for his son must happen urgently. The, the meat has been prepared, and he's got to have the wedding now. Otherwise, the meat will go bad. The king sends servants, just like he did in the second parable. These servants were the Old Testament prophets, calling Israel to the marriage feast, calling these religious leaders to the, to the wedding feast. But they paid no attention. They made light of it. There was no urgency. Meh, we can wait. They preferred their fields and their businesses. This action to the king is scandalous. It's rude. It's tre treasonous. The mistreatment of these royal messengers is despicable. The rest, these religious leaders, seized the, his servants, mistreated them, and killed them. Think of the Old Testament. Think of John the Baptist, the bride, uh, or the, the, the man of uh, the man of honor, or the. Groomsman, yes, that's the one. I, I think I said that wrong the last time. Sorry, strike that. 
John the Baptist had already been killed uh, in Matthew, four, uh, Matthew 14, tells that story. The irony here is that Jesus is talking to the religious leaders who claimed to be the keepers of God's covenant with his people. They believed they were the true Israel. The rabbis taught that the distinction between the true Israel and the false Israel lay in the compromise of the false Israel with the world. The culture of the Greeks and the Romans. And so those other people that don't do the Torah the way we do, they're the ones who are the false Israel. We are the true ones. The Qumran believers believed that they were the true Israel, the elect, the chosen ones, and they despised the ungodly who were compromising the common people, the Gentiles. It's interesting, isn't it? Puzzling, really. Shocking. It's the elect, the people that believed that they were the true Israel. They're the ones who refused the invitation to the wedding. Upside down, backwards way of, uh, of doing things. They refused the king. Unthinkable. Have you ever been invited by God to do something? Maybe nudged by the Holy Spirit to talk to somebody or to, to, to follow God in some way, shape, or form, and you delayed the invitation? Can we delay the king's invitation? Act 2. The king calls outsiders. Matthew 22, verses 18, 8 to 10. Then he said to his servants, The wedding banquet is ready, but those I invited do not, did not deserve to come. So go to the street corners and invite the banquet, anyone you could find. So the servants went out to the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. Matthew often shows this upside-down nature of God's kingdom. And here's another great example. The king passes over the chosen people, that is, the ones who thought they were a part of the covenant people of God, because they did not, it says, deserve to come. What made them unworthy? Well, there are hints throughout this passage. In Matthew 3, back a little earlier, there's the story of John the Baptist preaching in the wilderness to anyone. It says, a voice of one was calling in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight paths for him. John the Baptist distinguished between the true and false Israel with the same features as this parable does. What is that feature? The king urges the, the servants, his disciples, to go into the street corners and invite as many as you can find. The gates, the street corners, the markets. These were the places where the righteous Israelites wouldn't think of going because they were the places of the unclean, the outcasts, the bad. Matthew, of course, was a despised tax collector. He would have known, um, and he would have appreciated the honor in which uh, he had been received as a guest into God's kingdom, God's gracious invitation. So the outsiders now have come to the banquet. The wedding hall, or the kingdom of heaven, is filled with anyone responding to the king's invitation. And then the king arrives. Think of the return of the king, perhaps Lord of the Rings style with Aragorn. Aragorn, Samari, Arwen, or something like that. Um, lots of judgment, some gnashing of teeth, albeit, albeit for a different reason than that one. Let's see what happens with this coming of the king. Matthew 22, verses 11 to 14. But when the king came to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked him, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? 
The man was speechless. Then the king told the attendants, tie him up hand and foot, throw him outside into the darkness where he will be weeping, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth, for many are invited, but few are chosen. By now, the religious leaders are seeing where this parable is going, and it's um, upending their expected understandings of how the story should go. If they are the true Israel, then should they not be at the banquet? Jesus is insinuating that they shouldn't be at the banquet. Instead, it's the crowds, the sinners, the outcasts that are attending. Here comes the surprise. When the king arrives, think of the biblical last judgment, to inspect the guests, he notices one not wearing wedding clothes. Now, it should be understandable that somebody would not be wearing wedding clothes. I mean, this is last minute. And maybe the person just simply didn't have time to, you know, to get the right clothes on and, and just came in a hurry. They were nearby and, and couldn't go all the way home and, and get changed. What's going on here? Maybe the guest was not wearing a special garment, but maybe it was something about his garments that were also problematic. The king asks here, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? Sounds normal. What's going on here? The word friend at Tyros is used only three times in Matthew. And it's not your typical word for friend. The typical word would be philos. This word means acquaintance, associate, but without the affectionate terms. It's more like, sir, would you mind taking your hat off in this, you know, that kind of thing? Uh, sir, would you mind moving your car in front of the no parking zone? It means acquaintance, associate, without affection. It's used in chapter 20, verse 13. Back with the parable of the landowner and the workers of the vineyard. And when the judge comes to the landowner and says, friend, where's the fruit? Then again, here in chapter 22, verse 12, friend, where are your clothes? The proper ones. And finally, it's used in Matthew 26, verse 30, when Jesus says, friend, do what you've come for. to Judas. The king orders the attendants, his angels, to tie him up and throw him into the darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. This is the second time in the parable where few are chosen. The first few are the ones who think they are elect think they are the true Israel, but there's something missing that they do not accept or, or respond to the, the invitation. And now with this person who comes, who is invited, who comes into the wedding feast, but without the proper clothes. Again, what is happening here? Okay, I better tell you what's happening here because my time is up. In this parable, the meaning has been hidden just underneath the surface. It's a bit like if you go snorkeling and you have to kind of look underneath the surface and all of a sudden you see sharks and things like that that you don't want to see. Experience. I've done it. Um, and like a good mystery, the clues are there all along. We just haven't noticed it. 
So let's take another look really quick. The wedding banquet is God's invitation to many. That is, through God's extravagant grace to, his marriage of, to the marriage of his son, he invites, he invites many. In fact, the religious leaders would have said, why are you inviting so many? You're inviting far too many. I thought this was for a select few. No, the gospel is for many. For God so loved the few. No, God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. The king invites many to the banquet through his prophets and his apostles. Every Bible reading, every sermon, every song, every testimony, every ordinance is an invitation to accept God's gracious gift of friendship, philos, to be loved by him and to be a part of his church, his bride. But then it narrows down and others of us might say, well, why are so few chosen? The wedding invitation does not guarantee attendance any more than ads will guarantee sales. According to Google Ads, their sale rate is about 3.75%. Amazon's click-through rate is 9.47%. So many are called. 100 are called. Only 9.47 will actually respond. And that is that way with the gospel as well. The chosen guests, even, even the ones who thought they were chosen, have rejected the invitation. John the Baptist, the friend of the bridegroom, claimed that they, had, they were claiming that Abraham was their father, but they failed to produce good fruit. What is that good fruit? It's obedience. It's righteousness. That's what Isaiah 5 was talking about. That's what Jesus and John the Baptist were referring to. The man without the wedding clothes, according to John the Baptist, failed to repent, to turn around to clean up his clothes, and according to Jesus, failed to obey just like the first person in, the, in that other parable, and failed to produce fruit, like the parable of the vineyard. So what is the fruit? Back to Isaiah 5, verses 1 to 7. It says that the Lord looked for justice and righteousness, but did not find it. And that's where the fruit was missing. In John 15, 14, it, Jesus adds to his disciples, you are my friends, my philos, if you do what I command you. So what? God's invitation is not based on our human qualifications. It's based on his grace. His grace that he wills and he desires to extend to all people and all nations. It doesn't create a set of privileges like the religious leaders were thinking of. It can only be maintained where it meaningfully leads to a response of faith and obedience to God. It is not a goal, this, this wedding banquet, it is not a goal that we've already reached, but rather a beginning that has to be confirmed. The invitation to come to Christ is only the beginning. And through faith and obedience, through righteousness and justice, the fruit of that faith will grow. That's what the bridegroom was looking for. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would guide us to remember that our salvation, our invitation, isn't just something we start on. It's not something that you just start on, but something that you call us 
for the long haul to faith and obedience, to justice, to righteousness. Things that the prophets of the Old Testament called for, things that John the Baptist called for, and things that Jesus called for. You are my friends, he said, if you do what I command you. May we become friends of God and obey your calling with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. In Jesus' name, amen.